Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for visitors. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator from IndieWire, Eric Cohn, and tonight's guests, Godfrey Redjo and John Kane. Had to take a moment to come back down to earth just from that trailer there, um, though I have seen the film before and I can't wait to see it again. Uh, one of the things that is very clear from anyone who just sees this small glimpse of it is that clearly this is not anything you would associate with traditional cinema from something that you would see as you know a conventional story or, or even something that's uh, traditional... Uh, you know, commercial work or, or, or anything essentially that you would consider avant-garde. I mean, it's really in its own category. Uh, and yet, when, when I saw the film for the first time, and I imagine when many people see the film for the first time, they, they will bring a certain set of expectations because 30 years ago, your film Koya Niskazi became one of the few experimental works of cinema, I think, to, to, to achieve a certain amount of mainstream success. And, and that could also be applied to the, the two other Katsi films that followed it. So given those, those set of expectations being on the table, how does this work relate to what you've done before and, and, and would you put it in that same category at all? Um, good question. It's a different film, obviously, but it's in the same form or the same uh, modality of the other films. The subject is different, the look is different, the color is different, the way it's shot is different. It's not to repeat itself. If the Katsis, let's say, is to use an analogy, a symphony, all three of them, this is a coda. It's something that follows after that. Having said that, however, I'd like to go to what you said about expectation. For a film like this, if you're brave enough, you have to leave your expectation at the door. Most of us, if we go into a hamburger store, expect when we buy the hamburger that there's a piece of meat on the bun. There's no meat, metaphorically, on this bun. You have to be willing to have a different kind of experience. 
This is not nine out of eight films that are done in Hollywood are theatrical films. They're premised on a screenplay, they have a, or a storyteller, they have actors, plot, characterization. This film strips all of that away, all of the foreground of traditional cinema, and it takes the background of what's called in cinema second unit production and put it in the foreground. In other words, we would shoot this film as if it, if it in terms of the buildings, as if the buildings were Tom Cruise. We don't shoot us in a dock way. We shoot it so that the building itself is able to have a voice that can speak to you. All of you know, however, that everyone sees a different picture. So if there are, let's say, 100 people in the audience and after the first 50 leave because they can't find the meat on the bun and the rest of you are brave enough to stay, each one of you will have a different experience because this film is an autodidactic experience. You are the storyteller, you are the plot, you are the character of the film. I think the line I heard you use before is that this film is about your experience while you watch it, which is, which is I think, a great selling point. It could even be on the poster. John, do you want to well, add the, to that? The film is basically, it's, it's images and music. And... Um, the soundtrack is in one place and the images are in another. And as Philip Glass likes to say, you know, when the, when the audience makes the journey between the music and the images, the, the experience becomes very personal. It's like everyone's had the experience of being on the train and you have your, your iPod on and you're listening to music and suddenly, you know, the whole world is like a music video or a movie that you're starring in and your mind puts that whole thing together. Well, that's you having a personal experience with the music and what you're seeing. And to an extent, without dumbing the whole thing down too much, there, that same process is at play with a movie like this. There's a, an incredible soundtrack, you know, original soundtrack by Philip Glass, and the images that we put together, and there's a space between the two. There's no uh, clear narrative roadmap that tells you what to feel, just like if you're experiencing a uh, sunset, there's no meaning to the sunset, there's no story behind the sunset, but the sunset can be meaningful to you for whatever reason. So all these kinds of uh, perception tricks that your mind plays in, in, and processes that your emotions go through vis-a-vis -vis all that is what uh, a main engine of, of the experience of the, of the film. And that's why it's, you could have 100 people in the audience and you could have 100 different uh, you should, we, we hope that you'd have a hundred different interpretations of what the film means precisely. John, when you first worked on, on these earlier films, I think that people weren't really that used to seeing images flow in that kind of a non-linear, non-narrative fashion. Nowadays, I think, you know, people are sort of versed in the vernacular of YouTube mashups and whatnot. So, Having experienced that earlier uh, response to the film and then going through this collaboration, I mean, how would you compare those? There's two? a major, major difference between this film and Godfrey's other films. I was involved in the last Katsi, not Koi Katsi. Koi Katsi, I saw when I was a freshman in college. It actually changed my major from law to film because of that, but that's another story. So you still felt the, the effects. Definitely, but there's a major difference in this film, which is uh, the pace of this film. And there's a difference between this film and the way most people experience, you're mentioning YouTube and this and that and the other. I mean, it's, we're in a, a, 
uh, attention deficit disorder, mental health crisis situation with the way we experience uh, media. This film, in the 86 minutes, there's only, there's only 74 shots. So if you do the math, I mean, each shot is about a minute long, and some are much longer than that. So it's images and music, but it's the opposite of MTV world where I come from, where it's all about cuts and graphics and layering and you know, bombarding the senses. This is the opposite. This is asking the audience almost to walk into a, you know, a mindfulness exercise or, a, or a, a yoga situation. It's asking the audience really to be quiet and to um, pay attention. And as Godfrey likes to say, um, you know, the quieter a person is, um, the stiller a person is, the more heightened their senses become. And this film is asking you to, to engage in that. So 74 shots, so how do you go about mapping out something like that? Is there an element of improvisation? Is it stream of consciousness? Or is it more methodical than that? Well, a couple of things. If, if we knew what the film was going to be before we made it in its completeness, then it would be, for me, not interesting to make. This is a process of collaboration. It's a process of not searching for something or trying to come up with a logical idea. It's more a question of what you can, what, what you can find within yourself and how to give that form. Now, having said that, there's a method to this madness. And that begins with sensibility. It begins with a feeling that at least for myself, I struggle to give name to. So I do what's called a dramaturgical shaping. And that's principally to get us off the paper and onto film. One, because as I said earlier, this is a pictorial composition, not a literate composition. It's all about the photography. So a lot of work goes into what are the motor speeds, what are the lenses, what is the color, Will the camera be moving or completely still? What's behind the subject? All of it is about the photography. Once the photography is shot, then you get to see whether that has any relationship to your idea that you had before you shot it. But let me say this, if you're attentive to the film, it starts to speak to you. It tells you what to do. For those of you that might be, say, a sculptor or dealing in that medium, if you don't have a relationship with the stone, if you don't know the nature of the stone, if you don't have a, a uh, intimacy with that stone, you're certainly not going to know how to start cutting it, how to start sculpting it. Well, it's the same thing with a film like this. The medium itself you have to have respect for and you have to be attentive to because it speaks to you. Contrast that with beginning with a screenplay that's written before the film is made and then the opportunity to realize that play. It's a different form. Screenplays are based in literature. This is based in image. It's a wholly different modality of construction. And it's one that, oddly enough, is not that prevalent in commercial cinema. Commercial cinema is principally theatrical films based in literature about text. Narratively this film based. is about texture, not text. Now, you've been using the word film a lot, but John, uh, uh, as, as editor, obviously, you can certainly speak to the fact that this was very much a digital 
production. Uh, in what ways would you say that where technology is right now informed the result of both the experience of the movie and the production? Well, what, what, one of the things Godfrey's talking about, he said that the, a big, so almost like a character in this uh, film, a main part of the atmosphere is the quality of the photography. And to that end, we finished this film in 4K. I don't know if anybody knows what that means, but it uh, re refers to the resolution of the, of the image. And at the time, two years ago, I mean, 4K now is still tough to deal with. I mean, there are 4K theaters. The film is playing at the Sunshine Theater starting next Friday in 4K in their 4K room. But not every theater has 4K, and certainly not everyone's finishing in 4K. And the reason that we did that is because of the quality of the, of the final product. And two years ago, when we, when we were shooting the film and starting the process, I mean, we basically, we made, the only film before this one that was finished in 4K was David Fincher's film, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which he had a huge budget for. And we made this film on, you know, home Macintosh computers and we're trying to do a 4K motion. Well, we did do a 4K motion picture. So technologically, I mean, we used all that, that resolution and computing power in order to make basically an old-fashioned image, a black and white image based in silver gelatin, you know, the idea of silver gelatin photography. So that was our, our aim. And uh, the reason behind that, and Godfrey can speak to this, uh, the theory behind why you want to make a beautiful image to try to talk about things that are disturbing. There's, uh, you know, the beauty is sort of the way, the beauty of the images in the film and the way it's put together is one of the main ways that we keep the audience's attention. It's not through narrative and what's going to, I mean, there is a what's going to happen next because you're, you're disoriented, but the, uh, the technology was all at the service of creating this, what we call perfected image. And uh, every, there are 74 shots in the film, 70 or 76 or whatever the exact number is, all but two of them are effect shots, but you'd never know it. So the technology was at the service of making the effects invisible um, and just having the audience hopefully sink into the experience without being reminded that they're watching a movie. And if I could add this, please, if it's okay. The, you mentioned beauty. Beauty is one of our accesses, one of our roads to a truth. Beauty is not something that's supposed to be placid or put you to sleep or be like cuddly. The very origin of the word in Greek is kalos, but the origin of kalos is kalio, which means to provoke. Beauty is to provoke the soul. There's a beautiful story about the lion's roar. The mythology says that the lion's cubs are stillborn and that the mother roars them, brings their heart through provocation back into the world. These films, analogously, are an attempt to be like a lion's roar, to wake us up through beauty. One of the quotes that's on the one sheet for this film is from Nietzsche. He says that we have art in order that we may not perish by the truth. That's a very provocative term. Art has no meaning. The meaning is in the eye of the beholder. Art is intrinsically something that can be beautiful and provocative. The truth he talks about is not truth as such. It's the truth, it's the established truth. It's men speaking for God. 
this is what he wanted to avoid, us speaking for the Home Office. And he felt that art, which is not subject to ideology, if it is, then it's propaganda or social realism or advertisement. Art has its own voice. It's free, and it's meant to connect with those that are willing to listen to it. I'd like to share one of the clips that we have so that people can actually see a little bit more of what you're talking about here. And so I, I'm hoping we can queue up the bug-eyed clip here in just a second. But just to, to set it up in a, in a general sense, uh, you know, to go from some of the conceptual stuff you're talking about to more, more of a practical way of, of just understanding what we're doing here. Right. How, did, how did you select some of these images where, you know, what was the sort of moment-to-moment process well, in it's, terms it's, of that? Uh, it's the photography, again. All of these, we didn't, while we shot an enormous amount of footage, we didn't shoot a lot of subject matter. A lot of the footage that we're shooting, we're, we're hoping to catch spontaneity. Uh, anybody that you see in this film is what's called in the business an extra. The direction to those people were not to tell them how to act, how to feel, how to look, what expression they have on their face. The direction was to put them into a, into a circumstance, a context, where the people were doing what they normally do every day to begin with. So for example, children watching television. We, don't, we can't tell the child to have an automaticity on her face, an emotive expression that comes through like a freight train and disappears. This is the result of watching something on a tube. They all knew they were being photographed, but they were being photographed to a, through a two-way mirror so that what they were looking at, actually the camera was right behind. We had to film a lot of people, one subject but a lot of people, in order to find that which was going to be most articulate. All those people were only doing what they normally do. They were never directed to have this feeling or that. We were able to capture it with the photography. But the, 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 also the answer to the question is that we spent months watching. We watched, obviously, all the footage, but we watched all the footage in real time, multiple times. And one of the most basic uh, parts of the collaboration was those early screenings. We were watching these hours and hours and days and weeks, really, worth of footage and coming up as a group, um, we do all the editing at the studio in Red Hook and there's a whole group of us. We could feel as we watched the material over and over again how we were getting a shared language of, okay, that's obviously a not, that one doesn't work. We don't have to talk a lot. We, so we weeded through and came to the language of the film by, through time, really. Time and patience with the material. Like Godfrey saying, you have to get to know the Stone, we really got to know our material to the point where it was pretty clear. I mean, there were debates at the end, this shot versus that shot, but it became very, remarkably clear, remarkably early, which shots were the good shots, for whatever reason, for our criteria, and which weren't. So let's take a look at one of those good shots.
So what, what you notice, of course, is that you're looking at the screen, but of course the screen is looking back at you. There's a, the dynamic is a reciprocal gaze. In conventional cinema, one of the things that is usually not allowed, only by exception present, is for the actor to have direct eye contact with the camera because that would break the voyeuristic relationship of you looking through this keyhole at everything from love to murder to comedy to madness. This film breaks that because these people are in dialogue with you. So it's whatever that stimulates in you becomes the narrative of the film. And it might also be important to point out that it, you know this reflective gaze isn't only taking place with human subjects. You have a gorilla that's a prominent Absolutely. face in the film. The as star well. of the movie. Star of the movie. What's her, what's her well, name? Trishka. Trishka. And the reason for her is that the, the film has three main characters, if you want, or, or, or a group of characters. The gorilla humans and cyborg. In this film, the gorilla is the adult in the room. She's a lowland female gorilla. Her face looks most like human animals, like us. And she is a person that fills this beautiful idea that Isley says that we as human beings have not seen ourselves until we've been seen through the eyes of another animal. In this film, those that are watching the film are the real King Kong. We're hanging by our tails, that is T-A-L-E-S, from the trees. All of us are also cyborgs from the point of view of this film. Not of science fiction, but the fiction of science because of our intractable, necessary relationship with technology and the price we pay for that pursuit of technological happiness. So be careful what your fingers do. So with that conceit in mind, let's take a look at the other clip that we have here. Okay, so why black and white? Well, you know, it's a subjective choice, but I'll give you three reasons, at least for myself, that make the most sense. First of all, color contemporizes an image. It brings it to the present. I wanted a film that was otherworldly, in another zone, here but not. In other words, dealing with contrarities, if you want. So I felt black and white would be an excellent choice. Two, precognitive, before you think, when you see color, your eye starts to go to the different colors in order to bring the matrix of the one image together in front of you. It becomes a distraction for this film. And three, and most importantly, when something is in black and white, it takes it more into the realm of art. It can be more emotive, have more of an affect, less representative, more something that can watermark you, in my opinion, rather than the brilliance and the beauty of color. Also in this film, there are a lot of faces looking at you. Not only is the film in black and white, 
If you notice one of the characters, or you will notice if you see this film, one of the characters of the film is itself the black ground. If we see an image, we don't want anything behind it to distract you. We want that image so that staring at you and you staring at it, you can perhaps see yourself for the first time. So moving away from, from the image to the auditory sort of experience that the, that the audience has, um, we've, we've mentioned Philip Glass's score to some degree, but clearly it is a crucial aspect of the, the meditational quality of the film. So can you, can you tell us a little bit more about how that element of the collaboration worked? Did he do it beforehand or did it come later? It's like a hand-in-glove operation. One medium motivates the other. Put it uh, this way, God, uh, Philip comes to the shoots. So he's, he's involved. And, and, and this film, and I think all the films, Godfrey and Philip discussed what the films were about for, I guess this film was maybe eight or nine years. Uh, then once we begin, he comes to the shoots, and we, you know, the, things, the, the, the soundtrack and the movie are made together. Without Philip, there wouldn't be any of the films that I've done. Uh, he's not just a partner. He's implicated in the very, he's quintessentially involved in the making of the film. We want to try to be able to see his music and hear these images. And by putting those two things together, Philip's music allows that to happen. So, so did he actually compose things as, as you were editing? I mean, how did that Well, here's, here's the thing. I always ask Philip never to compose note one until he's been completely marinated in the ethos, the point of view, the look, and all of the photography of the film. As John said, he also goes to many of the locations to get an original charge. Once we do a blocking in the studio, and, and let me just clarify something. If ever I say I, in the work I do, I mean we, so excuse me. This is a work of we, not I. And uh, so once that is done, we do a dramaturgical blocking. We give temporal values, how many pieces of music, what movement it'll fit in, even what kind of instruments, what is the emotive character, all of that you talk to him about, but at the end of the day, it's his composition. So it depends on whether there's synchronicity between what as a group we're doing and the response that he gives us, and I'm always satisfied with it. So I'm sure that there are plenty of uh, questions in the audience right now, and all you gotta do is shoot your hand in the air and um, a microphone will come over to you. Um, I saw the Metropolitan Opera for the film <laughs> Glass. So you make this film before that or after? Oh, it was before. It, 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 Philip did Satyagraha before this film. How many years he did, before? He did it at almost the same time that Koyaanisqatsi was done. Early so that 80s. would make it in the early 80s that Satyagraha came oh, out. Oh, okay. So it sounds very reputation, very similar. Yeah, oh, thank you. Tranquility. I like that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Do you use like animation puppets or real life people to uh, play characters in the movie? They're, all the people are real, except the guy that you just saw there, that last one. He's a, he's a, a crash test dummy. Uh, Mr. Reggio, uh, since your films obviously have an overwhelmingly spiritual element, 
I would imagine that the, uh, the monks and the uh, religious community with which you were formerly associated have seen your work, and I would be particularly interested in their reaction. Well, that's very interesting. I have never received an action, a reaction, from any of the monks that I live with. The monks that I live with that are still in the community live, or that still in the brothers live in community. They're kind of outside of this world in their own world. Um, maybe it's because I, I took final vows at 25, I went in at 14. At 28 I was asked to leave my order because of uh, scandal, not anything sexual, nothing juicy like that. It was more about working with street gangs and delinquents and having the audacity to try to change the order. So it left kind of a bad taste in some of the monks' mouth, I think. But I've never ever received any response from the brothers and it's been like almost 40 years. My question, what, uh, the first impact I got uh, when, I, when I got here, uh, and also from reading the description, so I guess it's a critique to technology, and see like uh, this presentation at an, an Apple store, so just like, you know, like next to the, 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 the Apple logo, kind of stuck me as a, like a paradox. You're very right. And the uh, second. In close. And second, uh, sorry, I don't want to be like, I don't want to make you uncomfortable or be in a pain in the ass. But like, uh, second is like the, the Nietzsche um, quote you use. Uh, um, I got your explanation, so now I can understand it better, but uh, I found it a little bit pretentious. Well, I wish I'd have known you before this moment. Maybe I would have not used that pretentious term and uh, used another quote from Nietzsche. But I used that quote in order to provoke you, and it did. And I'm pleased, even if it's got that response. Uh, and what was the first part of the, the question? The, par the paradox. The oh, the paradox, yeah. Um, you know, you'll have to see the film. Uh, I don't know if you know, I live in the southwest of the United States and we have big forest fires. And one of the things that happens in order to deal with forest fire is that sometime you have to create a fire in order to backdraft the real fire that's happening. Technology for me is the most misunderstood subject in the world. It is, we keep thinking it's the use or misuse we make of it. It's something that has no intrinsic value. It's neutral. That to me is not real. Technology is as ubiquitous as the air we breathe. It is remaking the world in its image and likeness. And we're like the test dummy here, strapped in for the ride. So I wish us all good luck. Um, be careful of the technology. And, and it's no way to be careful anymore, please, with all respect beyond Apple. It's the very organization of life today that is technological. The technology is the environment we live in. And being human animals, we become the environment we live in. In that sense, all of us have now become technology. It's not out of us as something separate from us. It's implicated in the very nature of who we are because we become the environments we live in.
how, how and when did the idea of the unusual genre and silent movie and all the unusual features come to you? Godfrey has a long uh, history of films like this. Well, it, it might have something to do with mental illness also. Let me try to explain. I felt for years that I was going nuts. And then I had the good, fan, good opportunity to meet a Kikmungwe or a spiritual leader of the Hopis named David Manange. And David says, look, Godfrey, everything that you call sane, I call insane. Everything that you call normal, I call abnormal. That was music to my ears because that's the way I feel about the world we live in. As terrible as war is, as terrible as social injustice is, as terrible as disease is, they pale in comparison to the horror, for me, of ordinary daily living. And it's, as Einstein said, the fish will be the last to know water. We will be the last to know technology because it's inescapable. We live in it. It's our very life breath. If we forget it, it remembers us. So our last one is coming from over here. Uh, can you speak to the relationship between the films you've made in the past to what you're trying to do with this film? Well, it's well, kind of it, bringing it full circle to some degree. That's how we start. Uh, I, I can say for Godfrey that, that, that and you can mop up <laughs> afterwards. Um, this film is in, a, in the same genre in, in its basic form, which is music and images. There are no words. Um, the first, well, Godfrey's made three feature films before this, and then uh, there are some other short films, but they're all basically the same genre, Philip Glass music and images. Um, the first three are, are a trilogy the, called the Katsi trilogy, Koyaanisqatsi, Pawakatsi, and Nakoikatsi. And they live as a, a suite together, relating to each other thematically over three films. This film is the same basic genre, it's images and music, but it's a huge departure in, is in terms of the subject matter and the way that we deal with the ideas. It's, it's something less rational than something more emotive. I wanted to make a film that was based on the idea of the moving still, of being in motion but still at the same time. If you look at Koyanis Katsi, which you've seen, it's about acceleration, how we're outrunning the future. It's about how all those things that are present that are so obvious we don't see because we're immersed in them. I wanted to take a completely different look at the same subject, but from another point of view, from the point of view of stillness. As John said a little earlier, I believe clearly that the more still a person is, the more still they're able to be in the math, in the, in the middle of this acceleration, the more sensitive they become to the place they're in. So I felt to be more sensitive to this acceleration, I wanted to have a movie that slowed down the tempo. So for example, in most theatrical films, the average cut is anywhere from three to five seconds, generally. The average cut here happens every 70 seconds, as an average, some are longer, a few are shorter. 
It's to let, I learned as a brother, and I never really got a chance to do it in, in the film until now, that if you want to see that which is most familiar to you for the first time, you must stare at it until it becomes strange. And so I wanted us to stare at ourselves until we see ourselves for the first time and see how we are really off-planet living on the moon. So it's one thing to, to talk about the sort of concepts driving this film. It's something else altogether. I assure you to see them put to action. It's really sort of a next-level form of meditation. And the opportunity to slow down in today's information age is, is very much welcome. So I encourage all of you to go see the movie next Friday at the Sunshine and, and, and tell others as well because it's a great form of counter-programming. Thank you to both of you, and, and thanks, all of you for coming out. Thank you all. Thank you. Everybody join me in thanking tonight's panel.